Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today is kind of special for me because I actually have two guests, one of which is new to the deep dive and the other one has been here before. So I'm going to start with the one who's been here before, who I've known for a very long time, Ms. Alina Srivastava. She is the founder of both the Center of Transformational Change and the Creative Impact and Experience Lab. Her work lies at the intersection of social innovation, transformational change, and narrative strategy. Lena founded the Transformational Change Leadership Project in 2017, supported by the Rockefeller Foundation Grant, and served as the entrepreneur in residence for the Gender Avenger Futures Project. She has collaborated with organizations such as AARP, BiKids, FilmAid, the International Rescue Committee, UNESCO, UNICEF, and the World Bank. She's worked on impact and engagement campaigns for award-winning documentaries, and is a Fulbright specialist on the U.S. State Department's American Film Showcase roster. She's a Rockwood Institute Just Films Fellow, a Boheme Media Fellow, a Bellagio Center Fellow, and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Lots of fellows in that bio. (laughs) And my other guest is Mia Charlene White. She's an Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at the New School in New York City, where she teaches courses on race, geography, and space-making practices in communities of color. She is proud to have her roots in both Tarrytown, New York, and Queens, New York. She's a parent of two very energetic school-age kids, lives with disability, and identifies as a Black woman of African-American and Korean descent. Mia did her PhD in urban planning at MIT, her Master of International Affairs at Columbia, and her bachelor's degree in anthropology at SUNY Stony Brook. She's recognized for trauma-informed teaching methods with a focus on social justice. She's currently working on her first book manuscript titled Love, a Blues Epistemology from the Undercommons, an ethnographic exploration of vernacular planning, resistance in brown and black spaces. She's been featured in Harper's, Glamour's, Alternate, HuffPost, and Good Morning America. And I will also editorialize and throw in that me and Mia went to high school together. So I have known her since I was about 14 years old. And little did I know when we were at Brooklyn Tech, she would be as accomplished and brilliant as she is when we were all just trying to survive going to school in New York City in the 80s. (laughs) So with those long and lauded intros, I want to thank both Lena and Mia for being on the deep dive. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Oh, that's so sweet. It's good to be back. Really yeah, excited. you've been on the show before. Oh, so you're, you're my veteran and Mia is more the newbie. But I really thought it was important to have this conversation. And it's going to be a little bit of a departure from the type of conversations that we have on the deep dive where, you know, usually I'm interviewing someone who is very pointed in the way the conversation is going to go because they have a project, specific project they want to talk about. They've launched a book. There's usually like a hook to the conversation. And this one is going to be a little bit more broad, which is why I asked the two of you to join me because 
you're two of the more brilliant people that I know. And I rely on both of you, whether you know it or not, to make me smarter, to give me counsel, to make sure that my blind spots don't remain blind and are really just two very thoughtful people in my life that I really treasure having this relationship with. So when it came to having a conversation around so-called cancel culture, issues of accountability, issues of power, issues of transformative justice and forgiveness and grace and a whole bunch of other things, I really couldn't think of two people I would rather have that conversation with. So that's kind of why we're going to be a little bit of a free flow here um, rather than me just firing rapid fire questions. So I'm going to actually throw it to my high school newbie first and ask this. I started off with a little bit of editorializing because I said so-called cancel culture, but this is something that exists. We're seeing it all around us. So I'm going to use the word as popularly used, despite the fact that I don't really agree with the notion of cancel culture. So that's a little bit of question and editorial, but I want to start there and ask you, like, when you hear the term cancel culture, what does that mean to you when it comes to understanding power and power dynamics? Thank you, Phil. And I just want to say it's, again, a pleasure to be here building and in communicate in community with you and Lena. This is very exciting to me. So what does cancel culture bring up for me in the context of power? Well, on the one hand, cancel culture suggests this sort of moment that we're in, this sort of not really post-Trump moment where that phrase has been used. It's been sort of appropriated to critique the moral outrage that communities of color and other kinds of marginalized communities have put out in the world the kind of anger about systemic inequities and exclusions that historically looted, historically vulnerable, historically marginalized communities have been demanding acknowledgement of and change about. So we're sort of, we're in this white nationalist historic ongoing moment where people are using the phrase cancel culture to push back against those who are demanding to be seen and heard. Okay, so that's the one thing. But then on the other hand, we also recognize that there is a violence to the idea of canceling people who are always information and who are always growing and who are always figuring out who they are, particularly because they and we have all been conditioned under white supremacy, under capitalism, under empire, under colonization. No one of us has escaped the need to address our various inheritances. So on the one hand, I see the phrase being used to shut down conversation. And then on the other hand, I see the phrase as calling out really what are often trauma responses to seeing the kinds of mistakes that we end up making with each other. So we need to have this kind of generative conversation that you're opening up for us. And Lena, I'll ask you the same question. You know, we've had a lot of private notes back and forth, text and DMs and off-channel conversations, which partially iterated this conversation, right? That we should formalize this and bring in another scholar like Mia to kind of help us parse through some of this. So 
cancel culture and its meaning in this moment? Like, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I'll go to the last time I heard the phrase before today, which was on Friday, when counsel for President Trump, Bruce Castor, who, quite frankly, is one of the oddest, most limited attorneys I've ever seen in action. And as a former attorney myself, I think I can sort of say this is one of the stupidest attorneys I've ever seen as well, using the phrase constitutional cancel culture. And in terms of thinking through or trying to argue that the president was being canceled. And I think I screamed the first time I heard it because it was such a distortion of original intent of that phrase. The whole notion of cancel culture has came about, you know, a few years ago because it was about pushback. It's about claiming power in public spaces and in public domains and in the digital commons. And it's about pushback against exactly what Mia was talking about, which is the ability to say that I'm standing up for what I believe. I'm standing in my own power. I'm standing for pushing back against your inability to see my humanity, your intent on propagating supremacist and nationalist systems. I am declaring you canceled for that, or I'm canceling your ability to own my space. And when you think about the origins of the phrase, when you think about the origins of the phenomenon, and when you think about the way it's been distorted and used by the right wing or used by people who are pushing back against the concept, anywhere from the Yasha monks of the world to the Jim Jordans of the world, it's been a distortion of what it really means to try to cancel someone. I think, Mia, you're absolutely right. There is a position in which it can become hurtful and where it doesn't allow for growth or forgiveness. And there is an element of, I think, forgiveness and kindness that we need to sort of bring back to it. But ultimately, this is about really thinking through who has power and who has voice and who gets to claim the dominant narrative in spaces particularly around the narrative around people who have been historically marginalized and exploited. And before we kind of get into what I, you know, for lack of a better word, the deeper stuff, because I wrote down these ideas of anger and trauma and what we live in when it comes to the capitalist and empire state, I want to hang a little bit more on the power idea because these folks that scream the loudest about being canceled often are some of the most visible people that one could imagine. They have incredible access to cable news programs, to academia. They have agents, you know, creative agents, not, you know, they seem to be incredibly platformed, even as they say that they are losing the ability to be heard and to be platformed. So, I want to bring the power dynamic into this because even notions of forgiveness have power inside of them. Who's being forgiven and for what and by whom? So, you know, I started with Mia first. So Lena, I'll give you a crack at kind of going into this idea of power and who do these notions really serve at the end of the day? And then Mia, you can pick up after that. Sure. I mean, I think, Bill, you and I have talked a lot about the notion of power and voice, particularly on public platforms and on social platforms. 
And I think it's crucial to understand that those of us who come from communities that are often unheard or not platformed in the first place or not given the resources to ascend on these platforms, to build our own platforms, we are always the ones who are being asked to forgive. We're always the ones who are being asked to you know, sort of work towards unity. I think right before the election, you and I had spoken quite a lot about the calls for unity with, in this country in particular, with people who were feeling, who are Republicans, who are left, sort of feeling left behind by the MAGA and Trump crowds, or by people who voted for Trump four years ago and are feeling lost and such. And yet there was no attendant call for unity with those of us who have been historically marginalized, right? And so the power dynamic is always, there's a sense of like, oh, you really have to worry about how these people feel. And there's no attendant, you know, call to to sort of say, well, we know how you feel. Or we know how you feel because you've been historically marginalized. Or because you don't necessarily, you don't get to express your voice on these platforms without pushback or harassment or calls for violence or just by you know having your thoughts and feelings and intellect and insights and all of those things dismissed right often now i will say that i think you know someone like me i won't speak for mia or you phil but someone like me i i feel very privileged because i do have a platform but i've had to craft it right in a way that you know other people don't necessarily have to, if they're more quote unquote privileged than I am, if I if they're on a different part of the privilege spectrum, or there are people on the other end of the spectrum where they don't have the abilities to craft a platform like I do, and I'm always thinking about them, and they have less power on the spectrum, but they are always being called to forgive those who have lost their way, like anywhere from politically to like in the tech sector, we're like, oh, you know, we built these platforms. We didn't know there's going to be so much harassment. We don't want our children using them now. Sorry. Right. So it's always the most marginalized who are always being asked to forgive. And that's an aspect of the discussion around unity and forgiveness and cancel culture that I think is the most insidious. Right. There's a really good platform called The Conversationalist which is a woman forward publication. And they published a writer named Jillian uh, York, sorry, Jillian York wrote two pieces last year about that letter, like the letter with the capital L around cancel culture that was published in Harper's and about cyberbullying. And they're really worth reading because she goes into what it means to be marginalized and keep having to react and keep having to answer these calls for unity and to sort of to say, we don't subscribe to cancel culture. Like, what does that mean? They're really worth it. Amy, I'll let you jump in there. Thank you. That was really interesting. I want to say, if Phil may know this, I guess I'm going to offer this because my background helps me, rather has increasingly helped me understand where I fall with this. So I'm a Black woman of African-American and Korean descent. And when I was in my youngest phase of childhood, I was raised by my very old school Black grandma in a suburb called Terrytown in Westchester. And then when my parents split up, it was me and my mom's a Korean immigrant. And my grandma is a you know, very proud Baptist 
congregant. And once my mother and I left my grandma's house and my mom and I kind of embarked on our own journey in Queens, which is that period is when I, at some point after that, met Phil in high school, I still pursued the Baptist life, so to speak, and church life and congregation. And my mother always required that I respect my ancestors first. I had to switch out the fruit at the ancestor altar and pour the tea and light the incense and kind of wait for her to fall asleep while she was meditating. And then I could go to Sunday school. The reason I bring all this up is because forgiveness to me is really a Judeo-Christian concept. And I feel just very familiar with this from my own religious upbringing. And it's not that something is wrong with forgiveness per se. It's just, it's the wrong sort of unit of analysis, I think, for the kinds of conversations that we're trying to have around transformative justice. And again, it is not that I don't seek forgiveness from those I have wronged or that I seek to forgive those who have wronged me. It's that we are still recovering from this tendency to operate at the level of the individual when thinking about systemic crises like white supremacy and like racial capitalism and patriarchy and empire. So I guess what I'm saying is that there's something almost preposterous about, for instance, asking Trayvon Martin's mother, Sabrina Fulton, to forgive George Zimmerman. Forgiveness is not the unit of analysis, I think, for the first moment, for the first step. For us, I think at least for me as an educator and as a researcher, I really want to understand problems from a systemic and historical perspective. And it is absolutely that we should grapple with forgiveness, but in the wider everyday world and social media and interpersonal relationships, we tend to frame problems as some sort of interpersonal wrong that happened. In other words, there's an interpersonal failure between, for instance, as an example, George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. This is a just a really wrong-headed kind of way to frame the problem. I'm not saying that we've all inherited this framing and this condition. We all do it. And obviously, at the end of the day, it was an individual human being that pulled the trigger and murdered this young Black boy, this teenager. At the same time, so many structures, people, institutions, and, and processes enabled that murder in that moment. And I've heard Sabrina Fulton say over and over again, and she's one of many mothers that said, this is not about forgiveness, right? Because there really is no juridical justice. There is nothing that can bring Trayvon back. So what's our work? Where do we go from here? As the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. asked us to consider, where we go from here is to continue to serve with purpose as we seek to dismantle the institutions that enabled the bad thing in the first place. And yes, hold individuals accountable. So anyway, I say all that to say that the old Baptist in me is really like, not triggered, but I feel my old Baptist upbringing kind of pressed when I hear that word forgiveness. And so I just realize how very Judeo-Christian this concept is in our conversations about power and justice. No, I think that's an amazing point to bring us back to this notion of systems and larger societal and, and organizational forces that are at work. Anytime we talk about these types of topics, right, they are not just the way in which we interact with each other as individuals, which 
allows me to ask or maybe segue into this question because it is an organizational question that how do those of us who are engaged in these ideas of you know transformative justice and thinking about what keeps us together is sort of a two at least a twofold question one of which how do we organize to take on these systems in this current environment and I guess a second part, which I sh- should probably break out, but it's too late. I'm already down the rabbit hole, um, is to try to understand how we organize and meet each other where we are without the notion of canceling each other, even as we're trying to do the work. You know, Adrian Marie Brown talks about this, like we will not cancel us, right? So that's a lot. But I just wanted to frame it that way. So Mia, go. You're up again. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And just blessings and love all around Adrian, who's one of my favorite, favorite people. That stuff I said just a second ago before Phil asked this subsequent question doesn't change the reality that I have a lot of anger inside of me. And I feel a lot of resistance to sometimes giving people another chance. And I do a lot of daily work, meditation work, and other kinds of work, pedagogical work, to understand the source of my anger and to understand it in context rather than to see it as a personal failing and to then repunish myself in some sort of shame spiral. The reason I am sharing this is because I think cancel culture comes to us really supernaturally. No, not supernatural, but very naturally, (laughs) because we have all experienced what it is to fail, to fail someone or to fail ourselves. And we have all been punished. We know. We know what that feels like. And it's created a lot of shame and rage in us. And really, What I have observed in myself and others as a mother and as a friend and as a professor, as an educator, someone who organizes in my community for racial justice, I see people needing to point their rage, in other words, their shame and their grief, point their rage at somebody else. And again, I guess I'm pivoting to kind of everyday failures between and among people, the need to point that shame, that rage, that grief at someone else. And it comes from our own lived experience. So I guess I just wanted to say that, Phil, is, you know, all this stuff about this is a Judeo-Christian concept, forgiveness. And we're not asking Sabrina Fulton to forgive George. I just wanted to kind of preface my comments by saying that I struggle with rage. I struggle with it, even though people who know me may be surprised to know that. I struggle with rage. And I think part of the answer for how we respond to cancel culture is to slow down into a critical, reflexive kind of praxis where we understand how we continue to fail ourselves and each other. And this is sort of part of the work of being human. No one is beyond it. And this idea I see with powerful people, the kind that that Phil referenced, that have agents and that have big platforms and who are powerful. The thing is, I know I actually, I know some of these people too, and I know you all do too. In fact, some of whom are friends. They too have been conditioned with this idea 
that if they've made a mistake, it's irreparable, that their worthiness, their very worthiness is being called into question. And that's because we are all conditioned to do that to each other. We don't really allow each other to make mistakes. And we've all been punished for making mistakes. And so we're kind of caught in this cognitive dissonance where we want to hold each other accountable. And yet we are all traumatized from having been very, for some of us, violently held to account for the mistakes that we've made. So it seems like really the only answer is to be relentlessly honest about our failures and to stop pretending that any of us are beyond failure. And Lena, I'll let you jump in there as well. I can't see you in this moment, but I know you got something to say. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, Mia, I just want to say thank you for that. I mean, it's incredibly, that is radical honesty. And I think you're absolutely right. We need radical honesty. The interesting is that I think that I come from a very different perspective and a different angle from that. First of all, I was raised in a non-Abrahamic household. My parents are Hindu. They raised me that way. I am more so a secular humanist than I am anything else, but the way they practice Hinduism allows for that. They're very traditional in some ways, but very lax in others. And so they would be like, oh, come to temple. I'd be like, no, they're like, fine. you know. So I wasn't necessarily raised. I was raised with the mythology. I was raised with the pageantry. It informs my aesthetics, but my spirituality and such has always been slightly different. And so wasn't raised and had a Catholic godmother and was raised in a Jewish community. And so like I had this melange of like mix of just cultural influences, which were all sort of founded in the notion of guilt <laughs> in different forms, but not necessarily in that trapping of forgiveness that you're talking about. So as I said, I was raised, I'm privileged and I own it. I accept it. There are many different ways in which I'm privileged. And my activism, I think, has always come from a place, not of rage, I suppose, but of a universal rage almost. It doesn't come from a place of personal rage as much, at least not within the family unit, because I was raised with joy and love and deliberately so. You know, it's not like just, oh, it was a happy family in that like leave it to beaver kind of way, but it was like, oh, no, 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 there's, we are going to be happy and that's a value. And so I think a lot of my activism has come from a place of why can't everybody have what I have? Like, what is the source of inequality here? I mean, I was raised with parameters. I was raised with, you know, like meager allowance and things like that. They put, you know, my family put limits on me that were beautiful when I think about it now. I and mean, they weren't great then, but they taught me constraint in a way. But I am a rageful person. I carry anger and I love it. Like, I just love that anger. And I guess I'm not ashamed of it. Anybody who knows me knows it comes to the surface very easily and I access it, and I use it, and it's a catalyst for me. But it doesn't necessarily show up in the way I communicate in my platforms, right? So I have my own platform, and I use social media platforms. And when I think about the way I use my power, my narrative power, my voice, I try to do it with coming from a place that sort of radical love and that radical joy and a sense of community and a sense of sort of understanding that there are some people who are going to make mistakes and that I've made mistakes and I need forgiveness for that. And I say things sometimes that aren't exactly the right thing to say or that come from a place that can be misunderstood. And I try to extend that to a certain extent to people that I don't agree with. But the limits are 
that if you look at me or if you look at people in my family or in my community or in my extended universal family and you don't see their humanity, I have no forgiveness for you. That my idea of radical love will extend to your rights and I will protect those rights, but they will not extend to you and your perspective. And so when I think about the way we use our voices on these platforms and the way we push back and the way we hold each other accountable inside our community and outside, it has to come from that place of love and of justice, but also forgiveness for ourselves (laughs) before we start extending forgiveness to others. You know, it's interesting that in both your responses, and it started kind of early, we talked about this idea of anger and of trauma and how those impact how we deal with one another when it comes to having our voices heard. And yes, we can expect to a certain extent that these notions of cancel culture, so-called cancel culture, will come from our those on the opposing side of ours. But oftentimes they are in spaces that are progressive, turn against those very quickly that were once considered allies or that we once were in solidarity with. We, When the mistake is made or the thing isn't said or whatever it might be, you know, we kind of react in a way that unleashes that anger, you know, for, I always say, I'm, I'm like Bruce Banner in the first Avengers when they're like, how do you stop being angry? And he's like, I'm all, the secret is I'm always angry, right? Like, you know, we're always I, I in this. Yeah, I have yeah. that gif on my phone because I just pull it out. I'm like, yep, angry all yeah. the time. Absolutely. I'm, I'm always angry. I want to spend a little bit of time on whose anger gets to be legitimate versus those whose isn't legitimate, right? I think about the reaction to the recent insurrection at the Capitol. I felt real rage at that. Not because they were doing that, because I ain't patriotic like that. Like, I don't care about no buildings and all that kind of stuff. Like, that don't mean nothing to me. So all these people talking about, it's the people's house. I'm like, man, please. You know, I'm a Black man from Brooklyn. I do not care about those things. But watching those people parade around in the Capitol and they chilling like that, you know, with security talking to them all like, excuse me, sir, could you not like do that? Like it made me crazy because I was like, there's no way a bunch of people who look like me would have been up in there doing all that crazy mess, you know? And then, you know, I think like a week or so later, they had like a young girl, black girl in Florida. It's always Florida where this police officer like literally slammed this girl to the ground, knocked her out cold. Nine-year-old in Rochester, just to prove the point that these things just don't happen in the South. Pepper sprayed, handcuffed. And yo, that hypocrisy makes me angry, (laughs) right? So long editorial to wonder how do we, not all anger is the same, right? So how do we balance that? Can we balance that? I'll start with you, Lena, after my long editorial. Sorry for that. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, not at all. I mean, I don't think we can balance that anger and we don't have to. There, When we think about, I'll go back to your question about systems change. When we think about how we push systems and achieve transformation within systems, I mean, that's obviously like, I have founded a company called the Center for Transformational Change. So I'm thinking about transformation all the time. And part of it is how do we channel anger and rage 
effectively into constructive action towards equity, justice, and sort of shared collective prosperity. And we start in different parts of, as I said, different parts of the spectrum. Like we all have a role to play. And all of our anger, those of us who have been disadvantaged within the systems, we all have a role to play. And there's always going to be hypocrisy. There's always going to be people who are trying to grab power. And the way I'm trying to tackle it with this new company is to tell the story of systems change, tell the story of how transformation happens in communities that are the most disadvantaged, how they're doing it, how they're a model, elevate their voices, and you know, doing it through content and through workshops and through trainings and through you know, being a servant leader to these communities and elevating their voices and elevating my voice in a different way too, like becoming a different kind of leader myself. And finally, you know, being radically honest about my challenges and my successes, particularly as a woman of color, like I feel like we don't celebrate our victories enough. We don't celebrate our resilience. Like every time I've had to adapt, I should have written that down and told a story about it because there is a long line of adaptation and resilience stretching back in my life, 20 years of working, stretching back 500 years in this country of people adapting and being resilient, Native communities, Black communities, sort of later Hispanic communities and Latino communities, and now the Asian community. I mean, the adaptation resilience is there. And the signals for what we have to do now are there. So we've got to elevate those. We have to model those and follow those. And yes, we have to use, I'll just keep going back to radical community, radical joy, radical love. But yes, the anger that we feel when we witness every single time a little nine-year-old girl is told you're being, you're acting like a child and she has to say, I am a child while she's being pepper sprayed, that deserves the full force of anger from every single person who's witnessed that. And the fact that she doesn't get that full force of anger and the push for systems change is that's a flaw in the system that we've got to fix. I mean, the 75-year-old protester who got knocked down, got a concussion, was hospitalized, those police officers, nope, no fault. We need to organize against those things, right? But my job now is also to elevate the voices of the people who are doing it right, who are using their anger, who are using their love, who are using their platforms. And yes, either canceling or elevating their choice. And I'm going to support that. Hi, yes. Wow. That was really, really beautiful. And Lena, I just wanted to underscore that my reflection about Judeo-Christianity or its cultural relevance in this country. I wasn't necessarily assuming anything about your religious history or practice or cosmology. I was really kind of responding to what it is to be in the United States of America. Yeah, I was just really thinking about, yeah, this imaginary is a very Judeo-Christian imaginary, but I really appreciate you sharing what actually, in fact, is your own sort of inheritance. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I'll just say thank you to that and just say that no matter what my reality is, is that I live and swim and play in that imaginary. And so I'm affected by it and I ascribe to it. There are parts of it that are actually really beautiful. And so yeah. I'm not rejecting it in whole. And I grew up yeah. in it to a certain extent, but thank you for acknowledging that. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, same, same here. Very much same. Phil, can you, I'm so sorry. Can you remind me what was your question? Can Please you say that? about anger. Right. Yeah. 
The challenge for me is a few minutes ago, I opened by saying that I have a lot of anger. I have a lot of anger and I have a lot of rage. It's to the point that, you know, I teach almost every day. And before I start pedagogically, I've developed a practice where I meditate with all the students, a breathing meditation, and it is a space-making practice. And it is an approach that I think helps to center students and to give them a way through all of the emotion that they're carrying, including the anger. So absolutely, it's probably obvious that I believe that anger can be really useful. I also think that anger is uh, very complicated It's very, very complicated and it energizes us and it motivates us. It also can make us very sick. It can, in other words, yes, our anger is justified. It's ours. It's shared. It motivates us. It brings us together. In fact, it often helps us survive. But our practices around revolution or liberation I think, as we've been saying, require us to use anger toward transformative practices or space making. So back to the example that Phil was sharing about the young Black girl, the way that she was treated by that cop. The challenge for me is to see in the news, in so many different news outlets, that, for example, that episode treated as disconnected from all the other episodes. So what ends up happening is then that our anger, again, justified, again, natural, again, useful and important, it gets pointed only to this one individual. And then our practices, which kind of like are headed by a juridical justice system, So we pivot to our main practice, which is juridical justice. And if we're not able to effect juridical justice because we can't prove a priori that this man intended to harm her based on the color of her skin, for instance, right? Because we have this sort of bullshit colorblind formal equality principle in our juridical system. There's nowhere for our anger to go. So I guess I just truly believe that we need to figure out how to embrace our anger for sure, and to develop multiple modes, accountability, because what ends up happening is that then if the juridical system fails us, which of course it is built to fail us, right? It's a setup. It will almost always fail us. We have nowhere to go with our anger. It sort of boomerangs back and settles in our body and in our communities and in our interpersonal expressions, like the ways in which we might disagree with something really small, like somebody cut us in the line or something, you know, because we're so ignored on such a regular basis. So it's very difficult to be able to transform ourselves, transform our communities, our world without also simultaneously always transforming ourselves. And I guess I'm thinking very much about the domestic violence movement and theories of abolition, where we're trying to understand that abolition is, of course, as Ruth, you know, Wilson Gilmore talks about, is the presence of what we need for life-affirming practice. So it is that we use our anger to develop really precise lenses around what's missing, but we have to simultaneously be demanding and creating and dreaming about what we need. And so I just see on a regular basis 
people mostly getting really good only at one part of that. Yeah, that's a lot. And I want to keep an eye on time because I know we only have a few more minutes. So I'm going to really combine the last notion with asking each of you to give me a drop. So the notion is going to be a look forward. We're at the still at the very early stages of 2021. It seems like these conversations are ongoing and only getting stronger. And I would make the argument that with the change in administration, they've actually become even more important because we can't allow ourselves without the so-called obvious boogeyman to lose our diligence as it pertains to organizing and, and working toward a better future. So my final question will be, what is a notion that you're taking forward with you as the year proceeds for 2021 and to give me your drop for this episode? So we'll start with you, Lena. Sure. So what I'm taking for, I've been thinking a lot about the word hope. I'm in the process of trying to write a piece about it. I vowed to myself that I'm going to be doing a lot more writing. I did a lot of writing last year, but even more this year. And I'm trying to craft a piece around hope, which is a word that I've never liked before because it feels tepid and passive. And it's kind of like, oh, what do you hope for? And it's just like you're sitting there receiving something. But I'm really trying to think about, you know, sort of the the act of creating hope. Like my words are usually like, liberation and joy and love and like these active, like hefty things. But I'm also thinking about propellants, right? How do we think about building a just future? How do we think about building a future that is full of justice and equity and shared collective prosperity that where there's shared distributed power, where people's voices are heard and expression is free. And I'd never thought about hope in that way. And sort of at the end of last year, I started thinking about that especially as the pandemic drags on, I was thinking about what is the oil, right? And the reason I'm settling on the word hope when I never really thought about it before is because what's hopeful to me, especially in this conversation, especially in the midst of this conversation around sort of unity and forgiveness, however you want to frame that word, and canceling and cancel culture and how cancel culture has become distorted, that we all, those of us who've been fighting for justice for this long, right now have the opportunity to both fight for justice through anger and love and community and also build a better future. We have the opportunity for that dual set of tasks, right? Fighting for justice and building a better future. And that requires everything that I talked about, liberation, love, solidarity, all those notions, but it also requires hope. And so that's the way I'm now framing that word. And what I'm doing is I'm building a company in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so that's, that's, my, that's my expression of hope, of like literally trying to figure out every single driver from anger to love to strategy to storytelling, every single angle that we bring to building a better future. And so my drop to that is two different things. Because I'm a storyteller and a narrative person, I'm going to recommend Zadie Smith's latest set of essays. They're very short, each of them. It's called Intimations. And she wrote it, I think it was published last July, right at the beginning of like sort of the pandemic lockdowns. And it's her observed narration of what it feels like to be, to go into lockdown. And it's brilliant. Short, sweet, brilliant. And then the other drop that I've got is actually twofold. I think these should be read back to back. 
It's a book called Invisible Women. Because I'm a narrative person, I don't literally, I don't use, I don't look at data too often, but it affects us all. And I'm going to pull it into my practice more than I ever have. So there are two books called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. And the other one's called Data Feminism by Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein. They're both amazing books, and they're about intersectional feminist lens on the way our world is constructed through data. So those are my drops. All right, Mia, you're up. Awesome. And again, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel invigorated and I've been taking notes. Lena, I've already learned so much from you. I'm like taking notes and looking you up and I'm very intrigued and inspired. So my drop. So I guess I have two because I teach courses on black geographies and another course called the revolution would be cooperative, which is, you know, focused on community land trust. I want to offer a book by Dr. Jessica Gordon Nemhard, which is called Collective Courage. And it focuses on the deep roots of cooperative economics in the African-American community. And so for obvious reasons, I think we need to be present in our history. I think my word, I guess, is presence or present. How do we be present in our history and how do we understand all of the wisdom, the revolutionary work and ethos that currently exists already that's available to us at any time, including this wonderful work that I just referenced by Dr. Nemhard, which explores co-ops in the Black community. And then another book I'll mention, which is not out yet, but many of us in the environmental and Black geographic communities are like extremely excited about is called Abolition Geography. And it'll be a set of essays focused on liberation. It'll come out in June of this year by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. It's a collection of writings from, of course, one of our foremost critical thinkers on abolition, and the essays will be focused on racism, geography, and incarceration. And I'm just so excited for that book in particular. But these two, I think, make a really good pair, and I hope that they're helpful. Awesome. I'll do my drop very quickly, which is one of my favorite albums from Outkast, Aquemini. It's a album I talk about all the time. I call it the hip hop songs in the key of life. It's just an amazing record. And I listened to it again in full um, over the course of this weekend. And so it's fresh in my mind and fresh in my memory. And Andre Three Stacks is one of the best ever to pick up a mic. So Shout out, to, shout out to Equipment Outcast crew. And on that note, we could have gone on forever. And I know we will in all the ways in which we keep each other close. And I want to thank both of you, Mia and Lena, for being on this episode of The Deep Dive with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a beautiful talk. And it's so good to be in community with you both. I'm very grateful. Thanks to you both. All right. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure having both Lena Savastava and Mia White join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at FarflungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side. 